I have the joy of continuing our series in James' letter that he wrote to the churches this morning. But before we do uh, jump back into to James, as we're rounding the corner, getting ready to wrap up this summer series, I want to pass on to you something amazing that happened three weeks ago when I had the privilege of going down to Medford and serving with a group of about 20 high schoolers from our church as we built tiny homes for uh, folks that lost their, their homes and property to the wildfires that ravaged Oregon last September. When we arrived, we were greeted by the woman on the left, an amazing woman of faith named Alyssa, single mother of three who lost her own home about a decade ago when she was at the bottom of a well. She had hit the end of her road. She had lost everything. She was addicted to drugs. She started living in her car. She had no resources. But someone invited her to church and she came to faith in Christ. And Jesus transformed her life in a radical way. About five years after that, after her conversion to Christ, one day when she was at her house, she felt like the Holy Spirit told her that that God was calling her to build tiny homes for people that had lost homes like she did in a wildfire. The only problem is that she had no construction experience whatsoever. She didn't know how to put together like an Ikea shelf. And so in in Alyssa's words, like she watched over 2,000 YouTube videos. She prayed and asked God to give her wisdom and skill. And she asked for helpers. She asked for people that were skilled, that, that were foremen, that were framers, that were contractors. And God answered that prayer by sending her Dave, a man named Dave. I think we have a picture of Dave. Dave had over 40 years of construction experience. He knew how to build anything. And he did not know Jesus whatsoever. <laughs> So Alyssa told us, Dave does not know Jesus. He has not encountered Jesus, but in her words, Jesus was hot on his trail. (laughs) This woman talked about Jesus a lot. She was filled with the kind of faith that James writes about that isn't just expressed in words, but is expressed in deeds, expressed through the way that she loves others. And so it was beautiful to witness, River West, how our team and our high schoolers welcomed Dave into our family, just loved on Dave, cigarettes and expletives and all. We invited Dave to actually join us uh, as we, we spent a day just rafting the Rogue River. Um, Dave joined us. He, he was a part of our team. It was amazing. In the morning after our fun day on the water on the Rogue River, we showed up to the job site and Alyssa was dumbfounded. She said, when Dave got here, instead of usually turning his job site radio to country music, he turned it to the Christian radio station, which was amazing. It was a total miracle. It was an awesome moment until I realized that it was a pledge-a-thon day. It was a pledge of Sunday. Some of you know where this 
is going. Needless to say, the positive, encouraging vibe quickly gave way to a series of awkward moments as the DJs pulled out every stop to raise money for the radio station. Now, I have nothing against Christian radio stations uh, asking for money, asking for finances, but these DJs were ruthless. Uh, They even went as far as calling for a minute of radio silence and refused to play songs until people called in and made pledges. And honestly, it got so painfully awkward at one moment that I turned to Pastor Jeff and I told him we should call in and give them whatever they want to just make it stop. (laughs) Just make it stop, please. Now, why am I telling you that story? Two reasons. One, pray for Dave, pray for that man right there, that he would come to living, saving faith in Jesus Christ. The reason number two that I tell you that story is when you talk about money, even in the context of a church like this, things can get awkward. There can be awkward silence moments. And so I just want to be very, very clear from the beginning as we prepare to turn to a passage where James is going to talk about how our faith intersects with our wealth, with our finances with our possessions, that this is not a pledge-a-thon Sunday. This is actually not a pledge-a-thon Sunday. At River West, we are committed as a church to preaching through the whole council of Scripture, including the passages that may make us uncomfortable, but deal with how our faith is expressed in our relationship with our wealth. In fact, it often surprises folks to learn that in the Bible, there are over 2,300 references related to money, wealth, and possessions in Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself talked about money more than he talked and preached about hell and heaven. One out of four of his parables, 25% of the parables Christ shared, involved some reference to wealth. And perhaps this explains why James, Jesus' half-brother, devoted so much attention in this little letter, letter that he wrote to the topic of money and possessions. Because I'm convinced, like Jesus, James knew that nothing reveals where our faith lies more than how we relate to our money. So with that, even though there may be some awkward silences that ensue, turn to James chapter five, and we'll jump back in to where we left off in James's letter in verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned 
and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. Is it just me or do I typically get assigned the awkward, silent scripture passages around here? This is a really difficult passage. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of intense rhetoric and words that James uses. It's actually a sharp rebuke and a warning. But before we attempt together to unpack what James is saying here as he wrote this letter to the church, first we need to settle who's, who he actually is addressing in this passage. Who is he talking to? Of course, he's talking to people with money, landowners, business owners, wealthy people. But are these people Christians or not? There's actually a lot of debate around that question, around who James is actually warning in this passage. Are these people believers that he's warning, or are they not? You see, a lot of people say, no, 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 there's no way that James could be addressing Christians here, because it's such a condemning passage. He tells them, you fattened your Hearts for the day of slaughter. He invites the rich to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon them. To my knowledge, there's no worship songs whatsoever that are based out of James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Perhaps if we were in a Christian like metal band or something like that, these words would come out. But, but no, these words, they make Christians uncomfortable. This is not the way that we would expect James to address believers. So there's many commentators that argue that James is actually addressing this warning that we just read to wealthy non-believers who are oppressing poor Christian day laborers at the time that he wrote this letter. Wealthy non-believers. A rhetorical argument called an apostrophe, addressing people that weren't actually present at the reading of this letter. However, while there's perhaps some merit to that theory, it does not really explain why James would explicitly, explicitly address his audience as brothers and sisters no less than 10 times in this little letter, including in the verse that immediately follows what we just read. So look at the next verse in chapter five, verse seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Although we need to do some digging and thinking critically to understand all that's going on in this incredibly difficult passage, one thing is clear. James wrote this letter to the church, to the church, to communities where poor and wealthy people were worshiping side by side on Sunday mornings, which is why he tells believers earlier on in this letter not to show preferential treatment to the rich when they showed up to public worship gatherings. And so out of love for his brothers and sisters in the faith, James saves these harsh words to warn the church of something that he likely 
heard Jesus say on many occasions, namely that you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot put your faith in both God and money. You have to make a decision. So to help us grow in faith, to not put our faith in wealth, but to put our faith in Christ and express that through our relationship with wealth, James warns us of three unhealthy things to avoid. So if you're taking notes, this is what he warns the church of. Three things, hoarding wealth faithlessly, wasting wealth or withholding wealth deceitfully and wasting wealth selfishly. Hoarding wealth, withholding wealth, and wasting wealth. Or put another way, don't be faithless, deceitful, and selfish with your money. Now, this morning as we unpack each of these unhealthy attitudes, we'll also see how the gospel frees us to be faithful, to be honest, uh, to be honest and to be generous with our money and possessions. So let's start with the first warning that he addresses to the church. James tells the church, don't hoard your wealth faithlessly. Now it's important to understand when James addresses the wealthy and tells them in the first verse that we read, come now you rich, weep and howl, that this is not a blanket rebuke of wealthy people in general, but rather a specific warning given to wealthy people in James's day who were hoarding their wealth, defrauding their workers and employees, and living in excess. In fact, now listen to this, this may come as a surprise to many people. The Bible does not actually paint a negative picture of wealthy people overall. It doesn't. It doesn't paint a blanket picture that people that are wealthy and rich are not people of faith. In fact, there are many examples of godly people of faith in the Bible that had incredible riches. Abraham, Job. King David, Nicodemus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Jer Joseph, Arimathea, even Luke the physician who wrote the gospel that we studied for over three years. You see, it's not sinful to acquire wealth. And the book of Proverbs tells us to be prudent and to save wealth. It only crosses a line into sin when we hoard our resources to ourself. It's not sinful to, to have wealth, it's just sinful to hoard it to ourselves. This is famously captured in Jesus' parable of the rich man who hoarded his wealth to himself. Back in Luke's gospel, we studied this ages ago, but in chapter 12, listen to these words that Jesus addressed to his disciples. He said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. That, that's wanting what other people have. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man 
produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, now I want you to notice how many times the word my or I, the personal pronouns, the possessive pronouns, words I and my show up in Jesus' parable. Listen to this. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you and all the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Do you see that? This is the picture of, of hoarding, of keeping possessions, putting our security and hoarding what we can get our hands on that James is warning about in this passage. In fact, I want you to look again at verses two and three and how this, added, this hoarding attitude, James warns the church not to let our hearts be consumed with this. So back in James five, look now in verses two and three, and he says, your riches, they've rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. The Greek word that James uses for riches, plutos, it's a very general word that refers to money or possessions of any kind. And in James's day, you may not know this, but there were three ways that they actually measured somebody's assets and their wealth. Three things, your, your grain, garments, and then precious metals, coins, gold, and silver. And so what's fascinating in this passage is that all three of these riches are corroding, decaying, and rotting. And here's why. They're not being used. They're rotting because they're not being put to good use. This is critical to understand the context. It's a difficult passage, but you need to understand that these riches are being hoarded. They're not being employed and used for good. You see, in the first century, they didn't have all the technology that we have to preserve food and clothing and coins. So if you overstockpiled these things, there was a good chance that they would go bad, that they would rust, that they would rot. So the picture that James is warning the church of is taking your money and hoarding it instead of using it to do good, caring for the needs of others, investing the resources that God has given to help advance the gospel and God's mission in our world. That is essentially what James is warning you and I of in this passage. He's saying, if you just are sitting on your money, if you're not putting it to use, not only will your riches rot, but your heart will as well. 
Almost every commentator that, that deals with this passage points out the similarities between what James wrote here and what Jesus warned about riches in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves, do not hoard treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, friends, this is so critical to understand that according to both Jesus and James, when we hoard our money and our possessions, the things we have, it's actually a sign of a heart condition. That we've put our faith in something that doesn't last. And James says, the riches that we, we stockpile, we keep to ourselves and we hoard, they're actually evidence against our faith. That we've put our faith, our belief and our trust in earthly treasures that rot instead of eternal treasures that God gives that endure. You see, whether we know it or not, our view of eternity is the number one thing that impacts how we relate to our money. Our view of eternity impacts the way that we spend our money, that we give our money away more than we're typically aware of. James knew this. That's why he said in verse three, you have laid up treasure or some translations like the NIV say, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. That's apocalyptic language where James is saying, we are living in these last days and the treasures that you have laid up, you've done that with a heart that has actually forgotten the future that God has prepared for you and the return of Christ. This is very interesting and intriguing because James is saying that underneath all our hoarding and our greed or our selfishness is actually a distorted eschatology or a view of the end times. James is basically saying, if you hoard your wealth, you're just forgetting about the fact that Jesus is going to return at any moment. He could come back. You've forgotten all your gold and your silver will rust one day. So don't waste your life hoarding riches that don't endure. By and large, I think the number one reason that I'm inclined, that we're inclined to hoard our resources is fear. It's fear. Sure, people can hoard riches out of greed, but I think the most powerful emotion that can get us in a hoarding mentality is fear. Remember when everyone was stockpiling toilet paper early on in the pandemic? Why? I don't know. I don't know how a year's worth of toilet paper made people for, feel more secure. 
but I know people were afraid. And fear is a powerful emotion. And I think it's safe to say, River West, that we're, we're living in unsettling times. There's a lot that we could be afraid of in our current moment right now. As Marianne reminded us last week, we were confronted with the terrifying images of men and women desperately clinging to that plane as it took off from the Kabul airstrip in Afghanistan. As news spread around the world that the Taliban had seized control of the government, many Christians scrambled to make phone calls to ensure their loved ones were someplace safe. Those that prayed and sought to leave to a safer location were confronted with, with the awful reality that by the time those phone calls were made, the roadblocks were already in place. The roads and flights had already been closed. There was nowhere to go. As the Taliban began going door to door, seeking out Christians to execute, seeking out young women to kidnap, rape, young men to force in to service. In an unjust war, groups of believers came together at a secret location to cry out to God and to worship. A reputable missionary and source in the country shared that as the church came together on Sunday morning, shortly after the news that the president had resigned, they sang words from a hymn that many of you know, a mighty fortress is our God. These are the words that they sang. Listen to these words. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Friends, let me tell you this. No matter how much money we have in the bank, when we come to the end of our brief life that James compares to a flower that's here today, gone tomorrow, when we come to the end of our life, the only thing that will matter is how rich we are in faith and love towards God. That's it. That's it. I've done enough funerals. I've sat alongside people in their last moments. And let me tell you, at the end of the life, the end of our lives, the only riches that really matter are the eternal riches of our faith and our love for God. Every other treasure won't matter. Amen? Amen. Warning number two that James addresses to the church after telling us, don't hoard money faithlessly, he tells us, don't withhold wealth deceitfully. Don't withhold your wealth. And in verse four, James tells us, warns us, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You see, the context in James' day is many of the poorest individuals in society would seek out work as day laborers during harvest seasons. And because they were so poor, if they weren't paid their wages on a daily basis, these day laborers could not feed themselves or their families. 
And that's why God in the Old Testament enacted mercy laws that addressed employers to pay their day laborers, their harvest workers, on a daily basis before the sunset. Let's take a look at one of those mercy laws. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24 and verses 14 and 15. Listen to this this instruction. He tells Israel, you shall not oppress a hired worker, that's the day laborer, who's poor and needy, whether he's one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land. Those are the refugees within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. You see, folks, Scripture does not tell us that money is evil, that wealth is evil. Scripture warns us and tells us that the love of money is the root that leads to all sorts of evil, including extortion or withholding funds from people that we owe money to. When our hearts are consumed with the love of money and we love money more than we love God and others, we're tempted to take people for all they're worth. We have a tendency to step on others for our own financial gain and benefit. We have a tendency to underpay people or find ways to defraud others and to keep more money for ourselves. But I want you to look again at the warning that James gives the wealthy who are defrauding their workers, withholding these wages. In verse four, I want you to notice something. Who's crying out to God in this passage? Look at the verse on the screen. Who's crying out to God in this passage? There's actually two things. The workers, the harvesters, are crying out to God. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. Look right in the middle of the screen there. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields are crying out to God as well. This is fascinating. It's also deeply convicting that the wages and the workers are crying out to God. And as I was studying this passage this week, I felt like the Holy Spirit just posed a question to me to reflect on. It wasn't a pleasant moment of reflection. And I sat with the question, if my money could talk, what would it say about my life? My bank account my finances could talk, what would it say to God? What would it tell you about me? About my life, about what I actually care about most? What would it say about how I treat others, especially those in need? What would it say about others that I've owed debts to? Have I been honest? Have I been fair? Have I paid what I owe? What would it say about how I tip the Uber Eats driver, the DoorDash driver, the the servers at the restaurants? 
Chances are, if, if your money could talk, if my money could talk, I think there'd be areas in all of our lives where we haven't honored God with the resources that he's given us. This is ultimately why James calls the wealthy in this passage to weep and wail. It's repentance imagery. He's calling them to repent and to be honest in their dealings, in the way that they use their wealth. So let me ask you, is there an outstanding debt that you owe to someone? If you own a business, are you paying your workers fairly? When you go to restaurants, do you tip your servers fairly? Do you tip your drivers well? Back in my Bible college days, which were many years ago, I worked as a server in a steakhouse in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. What I discovered working there is one, Oklahomans really know how to do steaks well. Really, really, really well. But I also discovered something that disturbed me. None, none of my unbelieving friends that I worked with at that restaurant wanted to work on Sundays. And over the years, I discovered the reason they didn't want to work on Sundays is in their experience, Christians were some of the most difficult people to serve, some of the stingiest customers. And so one Sunday, I took a shift from, from a friend of mine that needed the day off. I didn't typically work on Sundays. But as I picked up this shift for another employee, and waited on the table of believers who had come to the restaurant after church. I was elated when I came up to the table after they had left and saw what I believed to be a $100 tip. I was like, man, I'm going to pay off some of my, my books, some of my debt. I was like, this is a $100 tip. However, on closer, closer inspection, it turned out to be a gospel track described as a $100 bill. It wasn't a real $100 bill. It was a track telling me to get saved. Let me tell you, in that moment, I wanted to run out to the parking lot and read James 5 over, <laughs> over the table that I had waited. Not only because I was already saved, and needed the money, but because the more that I thought about this, this would have given my unbelieving friends even more reason to distance themselves from God if it had happened to them. Friends, through the way that we live our lives and spend our money, it is one of the most powerful evidences of our faith in Christ. Amen? Amen? I know that's a hard word, but the way that we honor Christ through our finances is what the world is looking at often. often. So be generous. Be honest. It leads us to our final warning that James gives us. After telling us, don't hoard your wealth, don't withhold your wealth, Finally, he tells us, don't waste your wealth selfishly. Don't waste your wealth on yourself. This final warning James gives is aimed at a self-indulgent lifestyle where we basically live in excess with no concern for anyone 
or anything but our own pleasure. He tells us in verse 4, you've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Living in America and in our context here in Lake Oswego in Oregon, it's difficult to know we're enjoying the resources that God's given, the fruit of our labors, crosses over into unhealthy, excessive living. And while the Bible doesn't give us a formula for everyone's financial situation and clearly mark out how much we should give, the scriptures constantly remind us that our money is not really ours. That in James chapter one, he tells us, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. My friends, when we begin to look at our resources and treat them for what they are, generous gifts, from a gracious father who cares for our needs, who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, doesn't pay us the wages that we deserve. It sets us free from hoarding our resources to ourselves and and, and enables us to live with not only greater generosity, but greater joy, greater contentment. It sets us free when we put to death this attitude that it's my money. This last week, perhaps you heard the story of a Polish athlete, Maria was her name, who auctioned off her silver medal that she won at the Olympics for the javelin throw, auctioned it off and used the funds that she got from that medal that she won at the Tokyo Olympics to pay for an infant's life-saving surgery, won the silver and immediately auctioned it off to help for this life-saving surgery. When interviewed by reporters and asked what compelled her to do this, she responded by saying, a medal is only an object, but it can be of great value to others. This silver can save lives instead of collecting dust in a closet. Isn't that beautiful? Folks, this beautiful act of generosity that helped save a life, it reminds us of the infinitely greater act of generosity when God, out of love for the whole world, gave his one and only son so that we not, may not perish. We might not be hopeless, but have eternal life right now that spills over into ages that come. We're forgiven We can be welcomed into God's presence through Jesus' death, through the blood, the priceless blood that he spilled for you and I. This actually explains why James ends his passage somewhat cryptically by saying, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not 
resist you. Literally in the Greek, it says you have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not oppose you. The righteous one is what it says. Who does not oppose you. It's a voluntary death. He's reminding us of the gospel. James is telling us the reason that we're so often consumed and worried about our money is we've forgotten the one who was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. But he didn't resist being arrested, being executed on the cross. He voluntarily died for you, for me. And now we have infinite worth in his sight. Don't forget, right now, River West, he doesn't resist you. He doesn't oppose you. He's not against you. He's for you. He couldn't be more for you. You believe that, that'll unlock your heart. You can't do anything but be a generous person if you believe that. 